Hello and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm Martin Rogers. I am joined today by the returning Professor Tim Bale. Welcome, Tim, and please introduce yourself. Hi, uh, thanks for having me, Martin. My name is Tim Bale and I am Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London. Right, thanks, Tim. So firstly, you have a new book out and I've invited you on to plug it. So can you tell me what it is, um, why you wrote it and what you've learned by doing it? Okay, well, the book is called The Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation, and it's published by Polity, uh, who uh, are based in Cambridge, and it comes out on the 31st of March. So you may be listening to this uh, uh, after it's come out. Uh, The reason I wrote it, I guess, is part of my ongoing fascination, uh, strange fascination, with the, the Conservative Party. And I guess uh, this book was prompted by the fact that uh, at the point where I thought about doing it, that party was essentially on the edge of a nervous breakdown, if you like. It was the point where Theresa May uh, was finding it increasingly difficult to manage the party, impossible to get her withdrawal agreement through. Uh, The party then went down to a defeat uh, at the European Parliament elections in the summer of 2019, where it fell below 10% in a national election uh, for the first time. And there was really some doubt about whether the party could actually hold itself together, let alone win uh, a general election. Uh, So uh, that was the point at which I thought, you know, this is is an interesting situation to to look at. Uh, But then, of course, in the course of writing the book, um, Boris Johnson came along and picked the party up by the scruff of its neck and took it to this in some ways, quite historic victory in uh, December uh, 2019, this 80-seat majority. So what I was essentially faced with was, rather than a party on the edge of a nervous breakdown, a party that had been on the edge of a nervous breakdown and now seemed to be um, top of the world, Mar. Uh, that, I guess, made for generally a kind of roller coaster ride um, as the party's fortunes dipped up and down uh, as Johnson then um, had to face covid uh, then Johnson himself got into trouble, obviously, over Partygate, over Chris Pincher. He lost his place as prime minister. Liz Truss came along uh, for those um, 49 days in power, uh, eventually giving way to Rishi Sunak. So I guess what I learned was that um, nothing is certain uh, in British politics anymore. Uh, everything is uh, volatile. As Marx once said, all that is solid can melt into air. Uh, and, um, you know, this is a party that, although, you know, it's famed for its adaptability, uh, perhaps has taken that adaptability a little bit too far in recent years. So before we get on to sort of the recent history of the Conservative Party, is there anything that's sort of surprised you from uh, the writing of the of the book that's that you've learned that's sort of un- unusual out of the ordinary that you wanted to share? Well, I mean, I think in some ways I'd have to say that the the state of the Conservative Party uh, has uh, not surprised me that much because I think, you know, it's it's in an ideological cleft stick, as it were. Uh, On the one hand, you have, you know, a a party which is still pretty committed to a kind of Thatcherite version of economics. But on the other hand, a party that has tried to rebuild its electoral coalition uh, with a bunch of voters uh, for whom you know public services and spending on those public services 
is is quite important. Uh, I guess what has surprised me a little bit is the extent to which um, Brexit, which did hold those two um, parts of the coalition together uh, for a while, has you know so obviously collapsed in support and arguably uh, collapsed in execution. Um, I mean, I never thought it was going to be easy, but I guess I hadn't guessed quite how um, badly uh, the Conservative government would handle it and quite what a mess it would make of Brexit. I guess perhaps naively, I was believed that there was probably a certain competence uh, that was you know, part of the Conservative uh, worldview, if you like. And that seems to have um, disappeared over the hills in recent years, although arguably Rishi Sunak is um, bringing it back. OK, so let's move on to the recent history of the Conservative Party. And you, when you set it out like that, how it went from under nine, uh, sorry, under 10 percent in that summer to winning an 80 odd seat majority six odd months later. What on what on earth drove those contrasting sort of peaks and troughs? And then maybe we can talk about the in more depth the different sort of parts and traditions that make up the party. But what was it that drove the the ups and downs um, over such a time? Well, I mean, I think you'd have to look inside the Conservative Parliamentary Party to understand why. Um, Theresa May had so many problems in managing that party and eventually found it impossible to get her withdrawal agreement through. Uh, there are clearly, uh, you know, a bunch of, um, if you like, Brexiteer ultras, uh, you know, Eurosceptic zealots who are absolutely determined to uh, get the hardest Brexit possible and were simply not satisfied with what Theresa May was offering them and, and realised that having lost the the majority in the 2017 election, she was extremely vulnerable and then spent most of their time actually trying to undermine her and essentially replace her with someone who would give them the, the Brexit that they were um, looking for. And I guess it was Boris Johnson's genius, if you can call it that, um, to realise that, you know, this was no time in the end for half measures, that if he was going to put the good of the party above, if you like, the good of the country, at least as Theresa May would have seen it, then uh, he had to go the, the whole hog and um, deliver a, a withdrawal agreement that um, uh, arguably gave these people what they wanted, albeit on Northern Ireland um, had to pass a protocol on a kind of nod and a wink, uh, which you know pretended in some ways that that situation was sorted out when quite clearly um, it wasn't. Uh, but I, I think in some ways what Boris Johnson did then was to... to um, doubled down on the, the electoral strategy that Theresa May had begun to move towards in 2017, but it executed really poorly. And that was the idea that actually, you know, there could be some great sorting, if you like, driven by Brexit, so that most of those who had uh, voted leave in 2016 would eventually move into the Conservative camp. And uh, those who had voted uh, remain. Uh, would either stay in the Liberal Democrat or, or, or Labour camp, or if they were still, you know, fairly convinced Conservatives on the economic front, would would stay with the Conservatives. And in some ways, the story of the 2019 election is the Conservatives managing to bring over a lot of Leave voters without actually losing that many Remain voters, um, compared to uh, the numbers of Leave voters that Labour lost and the number of Remain voters that Labour managed to gain. 
So what has, uh, beyond that, if you can say, maybe uh, might be useful to put a little bit more historical context, but what has driven the the parties beyond the Brexit, Ultras and Theresa May that we've talked about and then into Johnson, driven the party, the different parts, the different traditions. How does a party essentially function as much as it has done over the last few years when it has gone from Cameron to May to Truss, uh, to Johnson to Trust to Sunak? Sorry, it's been so many in such a short time. <laughs> Can you just put that little bit into sort of historical context? Well, I mean, I, I think actually, yeah, I mean, I think actually, the you know, the underlying um, uh, quality that you always have to take into account with the Conservative Party is their will to power. Uh, and essentially, the, the, the feeling that, you know, ideology, however important it may be to, you know, some people in the party some of the time, in the end, is not something that you should allow um, to prohibit the party from uh, adapting in a way that is most likely to win it an, an election. Uh, so, you know, you, you really get to the point where in, you know, 20, uh, in the early, um, you know, uh, say 20, um, uh, 2005, you know, to 2010, Cameron seemed to be the solution to that because they were worried about losing quite a lot of liberal middle class voters. Uh, having kind of uh, locked them up, they were then beginning to worry about, you know, losing working class voters. And you get quite a lot of kind of populist rhetoric on immigration, even coming from um, Cameron at that time, and obviously Theresa May as, as Home Secretary. Uh, then I think, you know, with Brexit, as I say, I think the party saw a massive opportunity uh, in terms of its ability to win over working class voters, particularly in some areas that were in some senses ripe for the plucking in the North uh, and the Midlands, and therefore um, you know, moved, uh, you know, both its kind of rhetoric and indeed, you know, its leadership, obviously, um, to, to take advantage of, of that fact and to exploit that possibility. Uh, and then when that um, collapsed, I think, you know, there, there was a feeling that um, perhaps the party had gone a little bit too far uh, towards the kind of neoliberal end of things with um, Liz Truss as a reaction, perhaps, to some of the kind of more, if you like, statist, supposedly one nation conservatism pursued by Boris Johnson. Uh, and therefore, it was time to make, a, again, a slight course correction. And although I think Rishi Sunak and um, Jeremy Hunt could be described quite clearly as Thatcherites, they're not uh, the kind of neoliberal experimenters that um, the, some of the Trussites were. So uh, I think really, you know, that, as I say, there is a sort of red thread or a blue thread that runs through all these changes, which is just the Conservatives' appreciation of, of where the um, the votes are. And in fact, I end the book with a, a quote from Enoch Powell saying, you know, the, the Conservative Party has always got a you know, good sense of where the votes are. Now, sometimes it deserts it, obviously, and it might well do um, at the next election. Um, but generally speaking, uh, I think, you know, the Conservative Party is uh, obsessed with getting and keeping office and it will do pretty much whatever it thinks it, it, it takes in order to, to do that. So Already in the sort of few minutes that we've spoken, there's been a few different terms and labels and uh, groups have come up from Thatcherites to neoliberal experimenters and One Nations. Can you just give us a, an overview of the factions, if that's the right word, the, the different elements that, that make up the, the party as a whole? And give us maybe 
when they've been in um, in the ascendancy or how they've got a historical legacy and where they are now? Well, I mean, I think you're right to question whether faction is the right word, because, you know, without being too sort of nerdy and political sciencey about it, um, there's very long um, been made a distinction, um, first made actually by an Anglo-American political scientist called Richard Rose, between tendencies on the one hand and factions on the other. Now, tendencies tend to be much more uh, loosely based uh, single issue uh, groups. Uh, that don't necessarily have a kind of coherent ideology uh, across the piece and tend to sort of fade in and out according to, you know, the prominence of the issue uh, at hand. Factions, on the other hand, tend to be much more long-lasting. They tend to be more disciplined, more organised. They often have a presence outside Parliament. Uh, and uh, you can see this, for example, when you look at the Labour Party, you know, there was very much a kind of Labour left, if you like, and a, and a Labour right, whereas the Conservative Party... Uh, generally tended to be a party of tendencies rather than of factions, um, partly because, as I say, this will to power <laughs> meant that uh, ideology wasn't really at a premium with the Conservative Party. Now, you can argue that perhaps um, in the post-war period, uh, the so-called kind of one nation, more centrist um, conservatism tended um, to dominate. But I, I sometimes think that that is... Um, slightly misunderstood as if it were some sort of you know wishy-washy almost labor light um kind of conservatism I, mean, I don't think it was ever that um but it was a recognition that um you know some of what the labor government in 45 to 51 had done wasn't going to be able to be reversed very easily it just had to be managed and hopefully not spent too much money on uh, and then of course you have um you know margaret thatcher and the, the thatcherites come along in the, the late 1970s and governing in the 80s and into the 90s um when the the kind of settlement that um you know the the more one nation side of the party had had agreed to began to to break down and many conservatives actually were quite grateful because they were never very happy with that settlement in in the first place um now there was a a slight reaction i guess to thatcherism particularly on the kind of cultural um, side um, when David Cameron came along. I think there was a feeling that perhaps some of the kind of tough talk on immigration and on Europe um, that um, Mrs. Thatcher's successors like William Hague and uh, Ian Duncan Smith and, and Michael Howard uh, had um, pioneered was, was just too much for, for many voters. Um, so there was a kind of liberal Toryism that um, took over at that point. But again, I have to stress that, you know, Cameron and Osborne et al. might have been, you know, socially quite liberal, but actually they were pretty kind of bog standard Thatcherites when it came to economics. And there is this, you know, um, fallacy that somehow they're more centrist politicians when, of course, they presided over uh, an incredible austerity period uh, in, in this country. And then what we've seen, I think, in some ways is a reaction to Cameron among some conservatives and a feeling that, uh, you know, that liberalism, uh, that social liberalism um, wasn't going to work, particularly in an age of Brexit. And the party had to, um, you know, swing uh, back, if you like, to a, a more culturally um, conservative, um, more populist uh, position, if you like. And I think one of the um, themes of the book is the extent to which that, um, move towards a more kind of populist, culturally conservative kind of politics, albeit with kind of Thatcherite economics, is A, um, stable, and B, um, permanent. 
you know, has the Conservative Party, and I guess this is a central question in the book, uh, moved from being a mainstream centre-right party towards being what I describe as a kind of ersatz populist radical right party. In other words, has it in some ways in trying to fend off UKIP and the Brexit party and reform UK essentially <laughs> become a version um, of, of that, that party? So what, to bring it back to the, um, the period sort of you've, you've really covered it, just before we move on to uh, some of her um, successes, where does Theresa May then sort of fit within this tradition? Because it, it seems given the um, focus on the industrial strategy, perhaps greater intervention in the um, in the sort of economy from the state that we, than we would have seen under the Cameron and Osborne years. Does Theresa May, is she the sort of beginning of a post-Thatcherite era in the Conservative Party because of Brexit? Yeah, I mean, I think in embryo that is true. I mean, in as much as you can say it was Theresa May rather than Nick Timothy, um, uh, you know, there is uh, a, a feeling, I think, on the, the part of um, the people who came in with her and Nick Timothy being uh, one of them, one of her advisors, that actually... Um, Thatcherism had to some extent hollowed out conservatism and that in pursuing austerity, uh, Cameron and Osborne had, had done the same uh, and that actually they'd left a whole bunch of people um, behind, uh, which in some ways had led um, to Brexit. And then a less conservatism actually um, helped those people out, responded to, as it were, the, you know, the cry of pain that that. Um, uh, Brexit reflected, then, you know, the conservatism was going to be left um, high and dry. Uh, I mean, I think the extent to which Theresa May herself believed in this and some of the people Theresa May appointed believed in this um, is a very moot point. I mean, if you think about Philip Hammond, for example, who was Theresa May's chancellor, um, there was never much uh, chance that he was going to kind of swallow the Nick Timothy agenda. I mean, he is a kind of, you know, bone dry thatch right to his fingertips. Um, so there are always tensions, I think, uh, there, you know, between people who realise that, you know, for the, if you like, the electoral prospects of the Conservative Party, it was perhaps necessary to mitigate some of the, the more kind of extreme ends of austerity and Thatcherism. Uh, it wasn't something that they necessarily believed in, uh, or thought was very good for, for the British economy. You know, they still very much believed in a kind of low spend, low tax, small state uh, Britain. And, um, you know, for some people, obviously, even some of those who um, believed in Brexit, that was what Brexit was about, you know, rather than actually delivering to the, to the left behind. It was a chance for Britain to, um, you know, shuck off some of the constraints imposed by European legislation and, uh, make the British economy, if you like, a more easy, higher, easy fire economy along American lines. So um, these things are in the Conservative Party, you're never straightforward. There are all sorts of strains competing, um, sometimes even within the same politician, actually. Should we then move on to, um, in some ways, the most remarkable period of certainly recent political British history, but then there's a lot to choose from. <laughs> what led us to Liz Truss being in charge for all of for less than 50 days. Why did the Parliamentary Party effectively take leave of its senses 
in allowing her onto the ballot, or perhaps they didn't take leave of their senses. They thought it was a you know a perfectly fair thing to do. Can you just talk us through what led to her becoming and then stopping being prime minister in less than a couple of months? Yeah, I mean, I think you first have to understand that you know this was another period of nervous breakdown on the part of the Conservative Party. You know, they had hoped that Boris Johnson would grow into the premiership um, and clearly that hadn't happened in fact you know rather than actually uh, becoming more responsible in some ways he became less responsible um, over time uh, and there was a, a distinct feeling you know by the end that you know they just simply couldn't carry on like this uh, and one of the reasons however that uh, Boris Johnson wasn't replaced sooner uh, was because they could not think about, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, an obvious candidate to replace him. So when eventually they they forced him out, um, it was not because they, you know, had a candidate in mind or one or two candidates they, you know, they thought could do the job. It was simply that they got so desperate um, that Boris Johnson was, you know, leading them to um, defeat that they just had to get rid of him and then think about it afterwards. Uh, once they got rid of him, um, it became fairly clear that the number of people um, who you know could do the job um, uh, of the number of people who could do the job, uh, none of them was really a standout candidate. They all had uh, their their issues. So if you think back to that 2022 leadership campaign, uh, there was Kemi Badenoch who you know really didn't have the experience to do it, even though perhaps you know to some of the kind of culture warriors in the party, you know she. She was somebody who, you know, might have a future. Um, likewise, probably Suella Braverman, um, who, uh, again, probably lacked the, the you know, the, the gravitas and the, the um, you know, top level experience uh, to do the job. And when parties are making their choice of, of leader, you know, they will very often um, pick someone who, you know, particularly when they're in government and they're choosing a prime minister, who has served in cabinet for quite some time, and uh, Liz Truss um, ticked those boxes. Liz Truss, of course, also uh, like Rishi Sunak, actually had essentially been campaigning for the Conservative leadership for you know well over a year before then. So, uh, for all that you know, she may argue that you know she she suddenly had to get her campaign team in gear, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, it was very well known that she wanted the leadership. She was campaigning for the leadership. She had a team, you know, pretty much ready for uh, any campaign. So in some ways she was, you know, out of the blocks quite quickly. Now, uh, you know, she stumbled uh, during the campaign, the early stages in particular, because, you know, she's not a great communicator and she performed pretty poorly in the, um, you know, first debate uh, or two. But, you know, she found her feet there. Um, so in some ways, the reason why, you know, she ended up in the, the last two was because she was, you know, more prepared and more experienced than, than many of the other uh, candidates. But it's important to remember that, of course, uh, she was very much, a, you know, a poor second choice. And even Rishi Sunak wasn't a particularly popular first choice in that 2022 campaign. Um, you know, neither um, really impressed that much. Neither was the kind of obvious runaway uh, winner among MPs. Um, the the problem for the Conservative Party was that um, Rishi Sunak was less popular 
at the grassroots than Liz Truss because uh, Rishi Sunak wasn't able, like Liz Truss, to argue that um, he'd had no role in defenestrating Boris Johnson. Clearly, you know, what precipitated um, right at the end Boris Johnson's resignation was um, Rishi Sunak's resignation from the, the, the cabinet. Uh, and uh, I think he suffered from that during that 22 um, leadership campaign, particularly out in the country. There were just some um, grassroots members who were never going to forgive Rishi Sunak for what he'd supposedly done in stabbing Boris Johnson in the back, whereas Liz Truss uh, could argue that she you know, stayed with loyal to Boris Johnson um, to the bitter end. I mean, the fact that she'd essentially been <laughs> doing her best uh, to put herself forward as a leadership candidate for a year or two before then um, didn't seem to um, bother the, the grassroots as much as perhaps it, it should have done. Uh, and I, I think there's also an extent perhaps to which we have to remember that Keir Starmer, as leader of the Labour Party, wasn't doing spectacularly well uh, in, in that job. And I think there was a feeling among you know, some Conservatives that you know, they could beat Labour even with Liz Truss at the helm. So let's just wrap up this sort of section on the, the, um, the recent history by attempting to almost draw all of these disparate threads together. And whether we can talk about the issue of small boats is almost like a case study where all of these kind of factors are involved. So can you tell us how we've got to the place where we are through the medium of the Conservative Party and everything we know, we haven't talked about debates about and um, pulling out of the mm. human rights um, sort of court and on human rights. So can you just talk about all the different elements that have got us to where we are on the small boats issue? Yeah, I mean, I think this is where you go back to, you know, one of the central questions of the book, which is the degree to which the Conservative Party has transformed itself during this turmoil into an ersatz populist radical right party. I mean, I think one of the things that anybody who wants to understand the Conservative Party has to understand, uh, and it's true actually of most, um, you know, conservative slash Christian democratic parties in, in Europe as a whole, um, that the, the nightmare for them is um, uh, a challenger uh, arising on their right flank, uh, which is why UKIP was such a problem for um, David Cameron. It's not that under first past the post, uh, a party like UKIP or the Brexit party could actually necessarily win seats from the Conservative Party or indeed win seats at all. It's the fact that uh, a party like that would... Um, rob the Conservative of votes, the Conservatives of votes that might otherwise go to a Tory candidate and therefore allow the Liberal Democrats and um, the Labour Party's candidates um, to um, sweep up. Uh, so in order to prevent that, uh, the Conservative Party increasingly has had to talk a very tough game on uh, Europe and on um, immigration issues. Now, you know, that's not completely unprecedented, particularly on immigration. You can argue that, you know, ever since the late 1960s, the Conservatives have been talking tough uh, on immigration. It's just that in some ways um, that rhetoric has had to be ratcheted up so that every time um, it gets a little bit tougher uh, and then a little bit tougher and then a little bit tougher still. So we've gone from 
if you remember under Theresa May, those, you know, um, vans which uh, suggested, you know, that people should, um, you know, dob themselves in and, and go home and the uh, so-called hostile environment uh, to a situation in which now, um, you know, small boats has become uh, an issue that the Conservative Party, on the one hand, I think thinks it might be able to exploit and um, fears that if it doesn't, then a party like Reform UK, the successor to the Brexit party, uh, will do it instead. Uh, and on the other, thinks that if it doesn't deal with it, then um, you know some of the voters who, who um, flipped to the Conservative Party in 2019 will um, lose heart and begin to consider Labour, not on immigration, but on, you know, the, the, the grounds of, say, the NHS or the economy, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, you, we, we have a situation in which, you know, to, to recap, in order to fend off any possible threat from, you know, the, uh, on its right flank, the Conservative Party has had to talk tougher and tougher and tougher over the years. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's also... Um, you know, realise that unless it actually, you know, delivers on some of its promises on immigration, the whole thing might backfire. So um, small boats is not only something that the Conservative Party, you know, feels it, it has to say something about now, but that it actually has to tackle. Uh, and I think one of the big worries um, for the Conservative Party going to the next election will be the difference between, if you like, rhetoric and reality. Uh, because that cost them an awful lot under David Cameron. Uh, you'll remember that he made this promise to reduce net immigration by, um, you know, the tens of thousands, so that uh, it would it would go from over, you know, well over one hundred thousand, indeed two hundred thousand at some stages, um, to just you know ninety thousand or whatever. He never managed to keep that promise, and as a result, I think he helped let in uh, Nigel Farage uh, and UKIP. So. I think, you know, it's very much a double-edged sword, um, small boats. It's something that the Conservative government feels it has to do. It might give it, you know, some uh, greater electoral traction. Uh, but on the other hand, it worries, uh, and I think quite rightly, that, you know, it may well over-promise and under-deliver, which is exactly what Cameron did, leaving him vulnerable. And I think the nightmare for uh, the Conservative Party is still uh, a Farage comeback. I mean, Nigel Farage suggested very recently that that's not going to be the case, but, you know, never say never with Nigel Farage. Um, you know, if he were to um, re-enter the political scene at the head of Reform UK, and particularly if he were to um, do what he didn't do in 2019, and that is fight Conservative-held seats as well as Labour-held seats, then I think the Conservatives would be in, in even more trouble than they are right now. So... We just finish the, uh, this this section with some very very sort of recent um, up to date events. Is the ERG finished? The European Research Group is Boris Johnson finished? And is that particular sort of I suppose almost coalition within the parliamentary party has that lost its power given the tiny size of the uh, rebellion against the um, the Windsor framework? Yeah, I mean, this is where we come back to that question of, of factions versus tendencies, isn't it? I mean, I think, you know, there was a, 
uh, a trend to suggest that somehow the ERG was a you know a true faction in the Conservative Party. I don't think I ever bought that really. I think it was a tendency. I mean, it it was a single issue group, albeit you know an unusually disciplined one. Uh, and once that issue you know seems to be to some extent disappearing in the rearview mirror, its um, coherence and its prominence uh, and its activism. Um, is beginning to, you know, fade quite substantially. I mean, I think we've certainly, as you suggest, you know, following that um, rather kind of poor turnout of, of the, the rebels uh, against the Windsor framework, uh, it, you know, that really does suggest that we've reached peak ERG. In fact, that we reached peak ERG, ERG a long time ago. Um, as for Boris Johnson, I mean, to some extent, his fortunes were tied to um, the ERG in the sense that I think they put him there. Uh, and then once he'd you know done what they needed him to do and it looked as if he wasn't going to win them an election either, um, even some of those began to um, desert him. And certainly, I mean, I think, you know, it was a pretty pathetic or some would say bathetic, um, uh, you know, scene uh, when he was interrogated by the the privileges committee i mean he was i think floundering and he didn't look like a politician that was about to make a comeback he didn't look like the prince over the water anymore he looked like a busted flush uh, so I, I think you know although never say never uh, we'd have to say that you know boris johnson probably now is um in the past rather than the future of the Conservative Party. I, I don't think the ERG is a completely spent force. You have to remember that there is this, um, you know, bill going through Parliament, uh, which, uh, you know, aims to end the influence of uh, all EU legislation uh, in this country, the Ruel uh, bill. Uh, you know, there could be some trouble ahead for the Conservative government on that and the ERG might make the, the running. But if you look over the period of the book, you, you see that there are all these groups which, um, you know, journalists like to make a, a lot of. You know, it wasn't just the ERG, it was the NRG, the Northern Research Group. It was a CRG, the COVID Recovery Group. Uh, it's the Net Zero Security Group, the, you know, NZSG uh, you know, there's the, the China research group. There's a whole kind of alphabet soup, if you like, of, <laughs> of uh, uh, conservative um, parliamentary ginger groups. But as I say, I don't think any of them have ever developed into what you might properly call uh, a, a faction. And that's that's probably because in the end, when it comes to uh, economics, and there's a degree to which it's the, the economy stupid, even for MPs, that most of them are kind of bog standard Thatcherites. You know, they believe in a in you know taxing as little as possible, spending as little as possible, um, and you know a, a kind of you know rather nationalistic outlook. I think therefore there aren't you know as many big splits in the Conservative Party as some people seem to think, and I think that's borne out by the fact that. You know, we we're hearing a lot less of this or oh, the Conservative Party, you know, it's ungovernable than we were even a few weeks ago. When we uh, spoke before, you told me and all, all our listeners how fragile the voter coalition was for the Conservative Party then. The coalition that had then not so long before delivered Johnson's uh, victory with 80 odd seats majority. And while you were telling me about how fragile this coalition was. I thought you were mad. Why were you right? 
<laughs> I don't often get asked why I was right. That's normally being asked why I was wrong. Um, because I think there is a, you know, a mismatch um, between the, the two halves of that electoral coalition. I mean, you have, um, and it was based on leave. So you had a whole bunch of comfortable leavers, many of whom live in, you know, to coin the cliche, kind of leafy suburbs, you know, in uh, in and around cities, mainly in the, the south uh, of the country, uh, on the one hand, and, um, you know, uh, a bunch of um, people on uh, the, the, the same side uh, in, you know, European terms, but who have quite a different outlook with regard to the size of the state and the extent to which the state um, needs to, to help people, uh, you know, who are anything in some ways but Thatcherite in, in that respect. Uh, and I thought it was always going to be quite difficult for um, Boris Johnson uh, to, um, you know, make uh, Brexit work for those people. Um, I think, you know, it, it was fine to say get Brexit done and that helped them win the 2019 election. But it helped them win the 2019 election in part because it was getting Brexit done for a purpose as far as those voters was concerned, those second set of voters. It was in order then to be able to tackle some of the problems in um, you know, the public services and in particular the NHS and particular schools. Uh, it was, you know, uh, it was about, you know, being able to divert money that was supposedly being sent to the EU to transport and infrastructure projects in, in their area. And I just never thought that um, Boris Johnson really believed in all that anyway. He was just saying it for effect. And I certainly knew that uh, an awful lot of Conservatives didn't believe that either. Uh, and so it was going to be actually very difficult for the government to, you know, deliver uh, on, on that promise. So I, I guess I... I expected in some ways some of those so-called red wall voters to, you know, begin to have their doubts about Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party as soon as they didn't really see um, much evidence for what they'd been promised. Now, how much trouble do you think the Conservatives are in the various different parts of the country? You know, your red wall over here, your blue wall. Um, how far has that coalition kind of fractured given the sort of position in the polls quite a lot but what's your take uh well i mean i mean i i, I think obviously that the the whole idea of the red wall and the blue wall are to certain ex, are to a certain extent convenient fictions i mean uh, you know it, there's all, all sorts of um, differences between you know what some people think of the red wall and what other people think of the red wall even in geographical terms actually um but I think um, if I were the Conservative government, and I think you, you can see this really, and this is where we come back to small boats, that uh, it's going to be much more important for them if they're going to hang on to their parliamentary majority to, to try and win back those red wall voters. I think they can afford to lose uh, far more voters in the so-called blue wall because their majorities in those constituencies uh, are so much larger. So, you know, in as much as there is this trade-off that we were talking about before, uh, then I think, you know, the red wall is where it's at rather than the blue wall. I mean, the, I think the Conservatives do stand to lose uh, votes in the blue wall and do stand to lose a fair few seats perhaps to the Liberal Democrats, but there's an awful lot more seats in the North and the Midlands uh, that are vulnerable to uh, Labour. And so, you know, it's quite understandable in some ways that the Conservatives are majoring on these kind of cultural questions. But the problem is for them is that 
um, they might have uh, a degree of resonance with the voters that they're aiming to keep on side um, those cultural issues. But I don't think they are as important as the kind of bread and butter. Um, it's the economy stupid issues and it's the NHS stupid issues uh, for those voters right now. I think the cost of living um, has not completely knocked those cultural issues off the agenda, but, you know, has made them a lot less important as far as most people are concerned. Uh, and I think that if, um, you know, the Conservatives can't get the basics right, so in other words, they can't get the cost of living under control, they can't um, get people's real wages rising, you know, six months out of an election, uh, they can't do something about the dire state of the NHS, then I think, you know, however much they want to talk about small boats or anti-woke, it's not going to help them very much. So do you think that is the path to a potential coalition to get them over the line for the next election is sort of delivery on the economy and dial down sort of don't go too big on kind of culture wars yeah i think i think that's i think that's right martin i mean i think i think i think small boats make sense right i mean immigration is something that clearly is manipulable in the sense that you know with enough attention paid to it by what i call the party in the media in other words, you know, conservative supporting newspapers, their columnists, their editors, you know, even their journalists. And, you know, you, you can you can make that seem more important to people than perhaps they thought it was before. Um, I don't think um, with the best will in the world, however much the Daily Mail or the Daily Express or the Daily Telegraph bang on about, for example, trans issues, that you know they have got anywhere near as much traction, and I think to be honest, they're a complete waste of time as far as the Conservatives are concerned. Um, you know, if they're thinking about improving their electoral chances, so uh, I mean, small boats uh, and immigration, yes, uh, but the the vast you know majority of their headspace and time should be spent on thinking about improving. Um, people's economic circumstances and doing something about the NHS. I think, you know, that's the only way um, back for them. And of course, I suppose they can focus on Rishi Sunak as, um, you know, a, a kind of competent, um, clever, um, dedicated leader. Um, you know, that might not do them too much harm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, a, a focus on Rishi, uh, a focus on small boats and getting the economy right is really the only path uh, they have to to either victory or at least minimising um, a Labour win in such a way as the Conservatives might stand a chance of getting back again in, in five years rather than in 10 years time. So let's just bring this to the end with a question that I want to cover in sort of two, two sections almost. One was that there has been talk in sort of political circles of a realignment of politics with Brexit, with Boris Johnson, obviously the Conservative Party playing that um, central role. And how true was that? How true is it now? And relatedly, what are therefore your expectations for the upcoming elections in May and then the general election? So did Johnson dominate a new centre ground with this realignment was that true is it true now and what's likely to happen when that is put to the test at the ballot box well i mean i i don't think the conservative party is ever necessarily really uh, occupied the the centre ground i mean i think it's it's been very good at targeting in particular groups who will 
um, provide it with um, enough votes to uh, maintain power. But I'm not sure that that, that has necessarily um, meant that they occupy the centre ground, particularly, obviously, when it comes to the economy and public services. I mean, you can see this in polling. They are stranded and, and, and very often are stranded, actually, um, you know, to, to the right of where the, the British public are. Um, you know, the British public, if you you know take the kind of median voter, is just to the left of centre on the pub, on public services and on the economy. Uh, and I don't think the Conservatives have ever really uh, moved anywhere near um, the median voter since, you know, the, the 1970s in, in that respect. Where I guess they do represent the centre ground is on some of these cultural issues. But even that, I think, has to be um, questioned now. Um, you know, Britain is becoming a, a more liberal, more multicultural, more multi-ethnic um, society, and particularly as older voters, um, not to put too fine a point on it, you know, disappear from the electorate, um, I, I think the Conservatives are going to run into an awful lot of trouble if they think they're going to win by, you know, promoting that kind of Daily Mail, Daily Express agenda, you know, for forevermore. I think there's a declining appetite for that in the British electorate. Um, now, clearly, you know, there's probably still enough mileage in it um, at the next election and maybe the election after that, maybe possibly the election after that. But, um, you know, the Conservative Party does have to think about the longer term as well as the shorter term, although that's very difficult for parties to do. And it does have to you know, worry about alienating a whole generation, if you like, a whole cohort of voters uh, by, you know, what Theresa May was once described as the kind of nasty party politics that small boats, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, seems to seems to symbolise. So, uh, I mean, I think in the short term, as I say, you know, there still is, you know, just a possibility that the Conservatives could make it back in. I wouldn't want to bet against it right now, even though they they really are up against it uh, at the moment. Um, you know, Labour have got a huge mountain to climb. After all, they need a you know a, over a ten percent swing in order to you know get the narrowest of majorities. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think, you know, the fundamentals, the, the economics uh, and indeed, you know, the state of the public services uh, are going to help the Conservative Party any at the, the next election. So, you know, while prediction is a, is a mugs game, <laughs> I would say, you know, I, I would be quite surprised if we if we emerge from the next election with a majority Conservative government. Uh, and I wouldn't be so surprised if we emerge with a, uh, you know, a majority Labour government, albeit with a perhaps smaller majority than the party got, for example, in, in 1997 or even perhaps in, in 2005. And, and I think then we have to think about well, what happens to the Conservative Party in the future. Um, if it loses, it's hard to imagine Rishi Sunak staying on. I don't know whether he'll swan off to California like some people think or not, but... Um, you know, it, it's very likely, it seems to me, that they will do what they've done before and 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 double down on the kind of politics that they kind of ended up with at the you know end of their time in government. That's what happened in 1997, where you saw the election of William Hague and then Ian Duncan Smith and um, Michael Howard. If that happens, then we're probably likely to see either Suella Braverman or, or perhaps more likely Kemi Badenoch uh, become leader. Uh, and, and they are obviously very tempted um, by this kind of, you know, anti-woke culture war style politics, which, in my belief anyway, doesn't have as much of a kind of future uh, as they seem uh, to believe. But um, that might be something, I, you know, I can come back and talk about and be proved wrong or right about, you know, when we talk again in a few years time.
Excellent. Well, I'll have to take you up on that. Tim, thank you so much. That has been really, really interesting. I've enjoyed that. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much for inviting me, Martin. My pleasure. And this, uh, thank you very much to all of our listeners. This has been the No Man's Land podcast and goodbye.